Well, uh, yes, I've been here before a couple of different times. I came out and taught about discipleship a long time ago. I don't know how many years ago that was. And then was I here a couple of years ago, I guess? The first time was in 13. And then, then 20, I guess? Two years ago. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it's a familiar place to me. I don't know if I'm a familiar face to you. I don't know how many of you were here because I don't remember the congregation years ago. And this is, much as I'd like to say you're all special to me, uh, this is actually the fifth time I'm speaking in the last two days in different venues. And uh, at least I have the pleasure of speaking with you twice, tonight and tomorrow. But um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be here. And I, of course, I look forward to coming just even just to hear the worship uh, leading band there. Do you call it a band or just a team? Yeah, of course, in Church of Christ, you're not, not allowed to use a word like band, I don't suppose. No, no okay. <clears throat> yeah, okay. That's too blasphemous. Yeah, okay. So, anyway, I, I just, I love the music here. Um, yeah, I was asked if I'd talk about the battle for the truth. And, honestly, I, I actually did teach uh, a message with this title some months ago, I guess, at our church at home, and I, I suppose that's where you must have been aware of that. Yeah, okay. So he asked me to speak on that subject here. The thing is, I don't ever give the same message exactly the same way twice, partly because I make notes for myself, but there's too many things in the notes to cover. In re- my notes are unrealistic. I'm very ambitious when I make my notes. I want to cover all of this and all of this and all of this, but really I never have enough time. So. Uh, I don't know which part of the notes I left out when I taught before, and I don't know which parts I'll include now. I just have my notes. Um, I think I'd like to start with one of my favorite Proverbs, which is in Proverbs 23, 23. And it's a very important proverb for us in our time, in all times, but our times are particularly uh, demanding of attention to this. Proverbs 23, 23, Solomon said, Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. He said, buy the truth and don't sell it. Now, if you take him over literally, you'd be thinking you're supposed to have some kind of a transaction, some exchange for, you know, to give some money to get something back that's called the truth. In fact, I knew of a ministry that uh, they wouldn't sell their materials because they quoted this verse that says, don't, don't sell the truth. And they were saying, our materials are the truth, so we can't sell them. Now, I don't sell my materials either, but I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about what kinds of transactions to avoid in terms of, uh, you know, buying and selling things. What he's saying is the truth is something you must obtain, and it is something you must never part with. Now, he talks about buying it or selling it because it's a costly matter to obtain the truth and to, and to hold on to the truth and not to sell it. It doesn't say how much the truth may cost you because regardless how much it costs, you must buy it, you must have it. The truth is the one thing that's indispensable to possess. When you lose your grip on the truth, you have nothing else to keep you sane. Now, you might think, you know, you know that passage that everybody knows about when... Uh, Pilate said, what is truth? You know, everyone knows that quotation. And uh, it's interesting in the context in which he made it, which is John 18, 
uh, it's verses 20, uh, 37 and 38, it says, Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then, of course, Pilate said, what is truth? And I'm sure Jesus could have given a great answer, but he turned on his heels and walked out to address Jesus' accusers, and we don't know that uh, he really was looking for an answer at all. Or maybe he had no confidence that Jesus could answer it for him, so he didn't wait around for an answer. But the question of what is truth... I always thought when I was younger, that that's, it seems like an incomplete question. It should say, what is the truth? Because I've lived in, in a society that understands that truth exists. At least I was raised in a society that believed that. I'm not living in that society now. But uh, I was raised in a society that believed, of course, there's a such, such thing as truth. Everyone knows what the truth is. They, we don't know what the components of truth are because we have to figure them out. But we know there's such a thing as truth. Obviously, truth is what conforms to reality? Truth is what is true, as opposed to what isn't true. What is what you know? What is false is not the truth, and what isn't real isn't true. <coughs> uh, and therefore, the opposite of truth would be maybe a lie or maybe a, fa- a fantasy. Um, but it, but what's true conforms to reality, which lies and fantasies do not. I uh, uh, in one of my books I quoted the title of a secular book that I ran into once at a store in Oregon. Uh, it's kind of a, 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 a kind of a comic philosopher who puts out books of aphorisms that he made up. And he the title of the book, of each of his books, is one of the aphorisms in the book. And I was attracted to this particular one because the title was, I've, I've given up my search for truth and now I'm looking for a good fantasy, which I thought was humorous and sad. Because I don't know if he was actually really looking for a fantasy, but that's exactly what most people have done now. They, there was a time when all people in Western civilization knew there is such a thing as truth. The question they wanted to answer was, what is the truth? That, that, that the truth exists as a phenomenon, as an objective reality to be discovered was a given. To discover what the truth was was the challenge, was the was the errand. It's what we had to do. You know, is Christianity true? Is Islam true? Is Hinduism true? Is atheism true? Is uh, you know polytheism true? What's the truth? And of course, in my generation, which many of you probably are of the same generation as I, uh, but living in California, where you know there was the the hippie movement and so forth, the hippies professed to be on a search for the truth, and um, and it was very easy to talk to people about Jesus in the 70s because most of the people my age, at least in California where I lived, had been on a, on a hippie journey where they were looking for truth. They had challenged the truths that their parents had taught them in Western civilization. They were challenging Christianity. They were challenging capitalism. They were challenging, you know, American ideals. Whatever they'd learned, they were challenging that and looking for a, a good replacement. They wouldn't have said a good fantasy. They were actually looking for what they were hoping would be true, but they didn't know where to look. They experimented with drugs. They, they kind of looked into Eastern religion. They looked into the occult. Anything that was very different from the Christian American culture that they had been raised with, they wanted to find something, but they wanted it to be true. 
At least many of them did. That's why it was so easy to talk about Jesus, because when you find someone who wants to know the truth and who knows there is such a thing as truth, and would, and frankly, who knows that the truth always will have the best argument. That's, by the way, that's a proverb of mine. Uh, but the truth always has the best argument. Because there can be no valid arguments for a statement that isn't true. There can be arguments that sound valid, but they can't be valid if, if they're supporting something that is false. The truth is in sync with all truth. And therefore, all fields of knowledge that really reveal truth, whether you're in, looking in science or historical studies or even uh, the most profound philosophy, mathematics, whatever, it's all going to agree with whatever's reality because there's only one reality. And so I never asked, I never heard anyone ask Pilate's question when I was young, when I was talking to non-Christians. They never said, what is truth? But they would say, what is the truth? They knew what truth is in the abstract. Truth is obviously what is accurate, what is true, what is reality. They never doubted that that was so, or at least many of them didn't. Now, some did. We used to joke about the few people who used to, back when I was in high school, it was kind of a joke that not only the Christians, but non-Christians had, that there was some kind of new agey kind of people who'd say, well, you know, there, there are no absolutes. There's no absolute truth. But obviously, the obvious rejoinder to that, and you know, everyone knows it, I'm sure, is, well, is that an absolutely true statement? I mean, if you say there's, ab- there's no absolute truth, well, then you've just made a statement that claims to be true. Is your statement true or is it not? It's a self-defeating claim. And, and most thinking people knew that. There were a few really kind of new agey people who were starting to get dis- unhinged from critical thinking in those days, because of, probably because of drugs. And they were starting to think, you know, that's the kind of question, you know, uh, if you believe there's no, uh, no absolute truth, I mean, if you can really entertain that notion for a moment, you're in the same group of people that were asking, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping and those kinds of nonsensical things, because to say there's no absolute truth is to affirm something that you're claiming to be true, but you're saying, but nothing is true, which means what I just said isn't true. It's... It was still the case in the 70s that our culture, mostly, even the non-Christians, knew what the word truth refers to and had no doubts that there is something that is reality and, and there are other things, many other things, that don't conform to it. By the way, truth is narrow. When people say that Christianity is too narrow for them, well, it's, if it is narrow, it's because it's true. The truth is always narrow. We can see this. Everything you say that is, in fact, true you could contradict it with a thousand different things that aren't true. Every mathematical equation that you could, I mean, two plus two equals how many different things? Well, only one thing, four. How many wrong answers are there? Infinite numbers. You give any other number for what two plus two equals, and it's a wrong answer because it's not true. There's only one true answer. There's only one thing that's true, and what doesn't agree with that is false. I've always loved that fact because I've always wanted to be a thinking person who could search out and know truth, because I believed, I don't know, somehow truth is very important. Uh, and of course, as a Christian, I've always pretty much been a Christian since I was young. <clears throat> I knew that Jesus said he was the truth, which, which is something that made me always comfortable examining other belief systems critically and examining my own belief system critically, because I did know 
that the truth, whatever the truth is, will always have the best arguments. So bring on the best arguments for Hinduism. Are there any? Bring on the best arguments for Islam. Are there any? I'm not aware of any, but I've talked to Muslims, but they, they don't really bring on any that looks like a, a good argument. Or atheism. There's nothing like an objective argument for atheism. All arguments for atheism are emotional arguments. Every time you talk to an atheist and he's affirming there's no God, you ask him, what makes you think that? And he'll give you an emotional argument. Well, because there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much evil in the world. So you're emotionally reacting to the evil and the suffering and, and that you're making some kind of an irrational conclusion that that proves something about God? I mean, it, it, what if it proves that there's a God who allows these things? Suddenly, atheism is only one of two possibilities. It's not a firm, you have no firm answer for, a, for it. There is such a thing as truth, and everything that isn't agreeable with it is false. And the proverb says, buy the truth, because it's expensive. It's always been costly to stand with Christ. And when Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, yeah, you said I'm a king, and you're right about that. Actually, this is the purpose I was born for, to testify to the truth. Now, it's interesting that Jesus indicated that the kingship, his kingdom, was in, you know, inseparably connected to truth. Yes, I'm a king. I'm here to testify to the truth. It's the kingdom of truth. It's the kingdom of reality. As opposed to all other domains of philosophy, of religion, of thought, of behavior, of moral imagination. Nothing is true except what Jesus is testifying to. Now, Jesus testified that not only was he the truth, but, but that the word of God is the truth. That's what he said when he was praying in John 17, 17. He said, you know, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So we know what the truth is. It's whatever God said. And whatever Jesus said, he testified to the truth. God's word testifies to the truth. And in Psalm 119, in verse 160, it says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Which means, of course, what is true doesn't change. That is to say, fundamental, transcendent truths don't change. I mean, there are truths that do change. For example, I am in Alton, Illinois. Tomorrow evening, I cannot say I'm in Alton, Illinois. It won't be true because I'll be in California again. But today I'm in Alton. Some, some truths change. But these are not ultimate truths. These are not fundamental truths. These are not the truths that life is built upon. And the truth, I didn't realize this until recently. I was reading a book by an Indian Christian intellectual. His name is Vishal Mangalwadi. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He wrote a great book. He's written several great books. I had the pleasure of meeting him and he gave me his books, but he had a real, a great book he wrote called The Book That Made Your World about, about the Bible. And in his book, he went through all these different things that we take for granted in Western civilization, like human rights, human dignity, uh, you know, uh, personal property ownership. I mean, all kinds of things, and, and even the existence of truth. He had chapters on these showing that until the Bible was accepted in society, these concepts that we assume everyone would know weren't known. 
ancient Western civilization under the Greeks and the Romans did not affirm that there is such a thing as truth. Because they didn't believe there was one God. They believed there were a whole bunch of gods that had different agendas and had different domains that they controlled. And so, and you couldn't predict what anyone would do. They were, they were, uh, you know, gods that didn't have any predictable behavior and they weren't all in agreement with each other and, and nothing was universally true. I don't know how you can live in a world with that concept that nothing is universally true, but the whole world was like that, except Judaism, which had the Word of God, which is in its entirety true, and, of course, Christianity. The Western civilization that we know is built on Judeo-Christian revelation, the Old and the New Testament. And, And we assume things that are obviously so because Christianity told us so. You see, in in a universe that has a bunch of gods that don't have any real plan, don't have any predictable behavior, they're not particularly good. Uh, in fact, they're in many cases particularly they're bad, and uh, and they're at war with each other, and they control different domains of the world, and and you know nothing is predictable. You can't really you can't, for example, come up with science. Modern science is a product of the Christian worldview that. The Christian worldview is that in the beginning was not some kind of chaotic disturbance of a bunch of divine beings in war with each other. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, among other things, contains information. That's what words do. They, words communicate. And that Word happened to be the one who we know as the truth, Jesus. And <clears throat> because what was in the beginning and what's fundamental and what's transcendent is Christ, and he is the word. He is information. He is the basis for all learning. And he is the truth. Well, therefore, Christianity has always assumed that what is ultimate is a, an absolute truth. And that man benefits from knowing the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, <coughs> verse 31, he said, if you continue in my words, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. Well, from what? Well, obviously from error, from the lies, from the deception. Well, why would that, why would I be concerned? Maybe I have a, a good fantasy. You know, maybe I've given up my search for truth. I'm looking for a good fantasy now. Well, uh, no, a good fantasy isn't going to be good if you think it's true. Now, fantasies can be fun while you know you're in them. When you're reading fantasy stories or a movie, you know, based on something that's really unreal science fiction or something, you know, they can be enjoyable, but you know they're not true. Especially movies that have really hideous monsters or zombies and things like that. I mean, those would really be scary if they were true, but people who enjoy those things enjoy them because they know that's not really going to, there's not going to be a zombie coming into their bedroom while they sleep that night. They don't exist. They're not, they're not real. But they know they're not real. If they thought they were real, then they'd get to be a little nutty, you know? When you start thinking a fantasy is true, and, and, and people, these, these cults of, you know, waiting for the zombie apocalypse, and they're buying all these weird weapons and so forth because the zombies, they're gonna be upon us. Now these, when you get that dislodged from the truth, and you think that a fantasy is true, then you're kind of trapped in your own little world that doesn't connect rationally with the rest of the world that you've got to live with. 
And uh, you know, the best thing we can hope for is that we can know all the truth that's available for us to know. Now, nobody knows all the truth except God, but he has revealed all the truth that he thinks is necessary for us to know, for our, for our well-being. All things necessary for life and godliness he's given us through the knowledge of God, the Bible says. And knowing the truth is essential to being free, as Jesus said. In Second Timothy chapter 2, he said in verse 24 through 26, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. People who do not know the truth, they need to know the truth so they can come to their senses and escape the snare or the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. You see, that's why the truth will make you free, because if you don't know the truth, you're a captive to wrong ideas, and wrong ideas lead to wrong behavior, and wrong behavior leads to conflict with God, who is the truth. And you can't escape that until you know the truth, until your wrong ideas are corrected. And this is why, as I was saying, I've never had any objection to talking to people who are critical of my faith or my beliefs or my particular doctrinal stand on anything. Uh, let me hear your best arguments against it, because if you've got something valid, then I should change my mind. I'm not too proud to change my mind. I hope I'm not. If I know something is true that I didn't know was true a moment ago, if you show me it's true, I'm gonna, I want the truth. Because I'm supposed to buy the truth and not sell it. I don't care how expensive it is. I want it. And I don't care how much you offer me to surrender the truth. I won't. I won't sell it. I need to be valiant for the truth. That's something that God complained about through Jeremiah over in Jeremiah chapter 9 and, and verse 3. Uh, God was complaining about the Jews of his time who actually had access, of course, to the law and to the truth and the records of God's word. And yet he says, uh, they are not valiant for the truth on the earth. They're not valiant for the truth. Why, why is that word valiant used there? Because it takes heroism to stand against a culture that rejects truth and to say, ah, yeah, well, nonetheless, this is true anyway. What I'm saying is true, and you don't think so, but I'll be glad to hear your arguments, but I, I've probably already heard them, but I, I can tell you why my views are true. I can tell you why I believe the Bible, why I believe Christ is who he said he is, and, uh, and what I can tell you is going to be a whole lot better than anything you can tell me about why your views are true, because yours are not. Now, that sounds rather pig-headed, but let's face it, the people we're up against are not always without pig-headedness. We live in the most truth-denying and truth-opposing age that I think has existed in Western civilization. I'm talking about America and Western Europe and Australia and so forth, the Western world. Um, for example, there are truths that everybody knows are true, but we're being told we have to deny I don't have to give you examples. You know what they are. You know, radical gender ideology? Come on. We're supposed to believe that marriage between people of the same sex is pretty much the same phenomenon as marriage between people of opposite sex and that we should accept them both under the same definition? I mean, it wasn't enough 
in our society for, for the people who are the radicals who want to change everything, it wasn't enough to say, uh, okay, we're, you know, we're tolerant. You know, we, in America, you're free to do whatever you want to. You know, sleep with whoever you want to. That's none of my business. We're not going to put you in jail for it, you know. It's a free country. But we're not going to say it's right because it isn't right. And they were not satisfied being allowed to do everything they want. They're not satisfied until we say it's right. They're not satisfied until we say, yes, what you're saying is true. You, that is a, that can be a real marriage. We can define marriage that way. No one in the whole world in all of history ever defined marriage that way. No dictionary existing 20 years ago defined marriage that way. No person in English literature who ever used the word marriage used it that way. But if you want to change the definition, well, yeah, sure, why not? Why can't you just go ahead and change the definition? Now, because you're not the one who creates the English language for at least all of us. Same thing with the people who insist that we use you know, their preferred pronouns. Again, I mean, this is a very sad thing. I'm not trying to be uh, mean toward people who do this. I assume that the people who are passionate about this are very, very troubled people, very, very confused people. And that's why the truth is necessary. They are in bondage to something that isn't true. And people can only be set free by knowing the truth. Alan was telling me about some girls, uh, I don't remember the whole story, but some girls that he was uh, either saw or heard about recently, in, I think locally, who, uh, a bunch of girls that were, had changed their pronouns, changed their names, they were identified as boys now. And they, you know, and they probably were trying to convince themselves that that was really true. I wonder if these people really can. I mean, there's an awful lot of pressure to get us to agree that you can be whatever gender you choose to be today, and maybe a different one tomorrow. And, and there's, no num- there's no limit to the numbers of genders you can pick, nor pronouns. I mean, you can change it up any week, and, uh, and, and you know, we're somehow supposed to be obligated to go on this journey with you, and, and we're haters if we don't use the pronouns you choose this week as opposed to the ones you used last week and your gender's fluid and so forth. Come on, listen. You can live in that fantasy if you want to, but don't make me pretend that it's true, because it isn't true. You know, I'm not going to hate you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to persecute you. I'm just going to say, that isn't the truth. And until you recognize that that's not the truth, you're going to be on a, you're going to be on, in a fantasy journey that isn't going to lead you anywhere that's going to be helpful to you. It's probably going to hurt you very bad. It's definitely going to keep you from really having the relationship with God that you need to have. The people who will have a relationship with God are the ones who want the truth, even if it's an unflattering and unpopular truth. You see, our society has gotten a place where the truth is a threat to them. I don't know if any of you saw the documentary called What is a Woman? Matt Walsh's documentary. Well, you should. It's a very important documentary for our times. He's a, he's a, he's a, a Catholic, but he's a believer. He, he, he really loves the Lord, and, but he's a secular conservative uh, podcaster. But he made a movie, which is the most talked about documentary of, of the year, um, called What is a Woman? And in it, he just goes and he talks to, he goes to women's marches, and he asks the women in the women's march, uh, what is a woman? And they say, I don't know, don't have a clue. 
And he, he goes to these uh, you know, university professors who are teaching gender studies and so forth. He says, so what is a woman? And, and the guy is all, all over the place. He, they will not define woman. Do you know why? Because they want us to believe that a woman is anyone who wants to call themselves a woman. If you actually nail down a definition, say, well, you know, they have, uh, you know, these chromosomes as opposed to men, and they have different, uh, you know, genitalia than men, they're different biologically than men, that's not good enough because there's a whole bunch of people who have women's bodies and want to identify as men and have men's bodies and want to identify as women. And you're, and you're not playing the game with them if you won't say, yes, a woman can be somebody who has male genetics and male genitalia. If you don't agree with them on that, you're, you're, you threaten them. Actually, one of, on this documentary, one of the uh, college professors who teaches gender studies at a university, uh, he, uh, Matt Walsh, who was interviewing him, said, so, uh, so what is a woman? And the guy said, well, uh, you know, anyone who wants to be a woman is a woman. And Matt said, well, but you can't use the word woman in the definition of woman, you know? What is it they want to be that you're, call- you know, that you're calling a woman? And, and the guy got a little frustrated because he didn't have an answer. No one does if they don't have the truth. And, and the guy said, well, you know, why do you want to know? And Matt said, well, I just want to know the truth. And the man said, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable with that. I, I don't like the way this is going. He says, that's, that's very aggressive of you to use the word truth. He said, I feel threatened by that. What? And he said, because I asked to, to know the truth. And the man said, well, well, what's your truth? The man said, I don't have a truth. There's just truth, you know. And, and, and this college professor would not, he, could, he was like trying to nail down jello to commit himself to something because the man has lost his mind because he doesn't care about what's really true. He cares about what is, you know, politically correct in our current woke environment. And that was true of virtually everyone. He talked to psychiatrists, he talked to medical doctors. Only, only a few times did he find people who had sense. But most of the people who are educating our teenagers and our college students now, uh, really, they're, they're just in bondage to the radical ideology of the, of, of the woke left. And I'm not saying that to be political. It's not political. Truth is not political. What has happened, and some people, you know, I have a radio talk show. I answer Bible questions on the air. And once in a while, someone will ask me something that kind of talks about maybe maybe abortion or maybe about gender or something like that. And I'll give, of course, the biblical answer, uh, what, what is the true answer. And then I'll get a lot of emails from people saying, uh, your show, you, you should stay out of politics. Don't, don't talk about politics. Just talk about the Bible. I'll write back and say, listen, I didn't make this a political subject. Gender is not a political issue. Homosexuality is not a political issue. Even murder of unborn children, that's not a political issue. You guys politicized it. You turned it into a political issue. I don't want to talk about politics. I want to talk about morality. I want to talk about truth. But you have made truths that have nothing to do with politics into political hot-button issues that we are not allowed to talk about without being accused of getting political. Well, then I'll get political if that's what you call it. I'm not advocating a candidate. I'm not advocating a party. I'm not, you know, telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you what's true. But, 
Everyone wants to know what camp you're in. And, and uh, as a Christian, my camp is, I want the truth. And I'm going to find the truth in the Word of God. And when I've discovered the truth about a subject, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. Jesus said he came to bear witness to the truth. And at the moment, he said that his life was on the line. He was going to be crucified in a few hours just from, from the time he made that statement. It was not a safe thing for him to say what he said. Yes, I am a king. Yes. And I'm bearing witness to the truth. That's what my kingdom is. It's a kingdom of truth. And, you know, I mean, he was not intimidated, although his life was on the line. Uh, in the Bible, we read that the prophets died. The apostles died, too, only because they wouldn't compromise on what they knew to be true. Every one of them could have been spared if they had said, okay, all those things I was saying that was what God said, I don't believe that. That's not true. You know, they would have been spared. It's the truth that gets people killed in an anti-God society. That's why I'm talking about the battle for the truth. I'm not talking about taking up guns and, and, and uh, baseball bats and going out and, you know, beating up people who don't believe the truth. But there's a battle for the mind of, of people who don't care anymore about the truth or, and try to tell themselves that whatever they believe is their truth. And this is something we have to be very valiant to oppose because a society that has lost track even of the concept that there is such a thing as truth and that all of our beliefs conform to a greater or lesser degree to that truth and to the degree that our opinions agree with that standard, they are true opinions. And to the degree that they deviate from the standard, they're not true opinions, they're false opinions. But you see, the whole... I, I don't know what caused this. I mean, I, I, I frankly think the devil has been loosed. I, 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 that's it. I mean, he's just out to deceive the nations again. But as far as observable things that have caused it, I, I have to say it's, it's, it's a, probably the product of modern education. I think that there's been uh, a very strong leftist agenda in, in the educational institutions for a generation. And most of us who are more, you know, biblically thinking, we weren't paying attention that much. It just kind of captured a generation. So that our kids are told not to be concerned about what's true, but what they feel. And, and this is the biggest difference I can tell between the younger generation and my own and, and probably most previous generations. I couldn't care less how I feel. I mean, maybe I do. I, I don't like feeling bad. But I want the truth even if I don't feel good about the truth. I don't like, for example, uh, the doctrine of hell. I'm not sure exactly what hell is going to be, but it's, it's not what I would wish for any of my friends or any of my relatives. Uh, I'm sure of that. But I can't say, well, I don't believe in it because I don't like the way I feel about it. There are certain things Jesus said about money or about other, you know, issues about forgiveness, maybe they go against my grain, people I wouldn't rather forgive, I don't feel like it, but I have to do it because it's true. My feelings cannot be allowed to dominate my opinions and my conclusions, or else I will be, I'll drift from what is true. Because feelings, I just want to let anyone who's young here know this, because I don't know to what degree anyone has been indoctrinated by the modern mood, but your feelings change. 
ultimate truth does not change. Feelings are good things. Without them, we wouldn't enjoy anything. Without them, we wouldn't be sympathetic. Without them, we'd be stoic. We'd have a rather bland and unappealing social structure if people didn't have feelings for each other and so forth and about other things. But the biggest mistake we can make is letting our feelings dictate anything. They can, in, they can induce or suggest a course of action. But we start to choose our course of action not on the basis of feelings because sometimes I might feel like responding to somebody who's making me angry or, frankly, toward, uh, you know, what, what, what do you have feelings of lust towards someone? You can't just say, oh, well, because I have feelings of lust, I know what I, I want to do. You don't do what you feel like. You do what you know is in accordance with truth. You do what you know is right, and you know it because you know the truth from the Scripture. And we have a generation in many cases who have been encouraged to just affirm their feelings. And that's why they talk about gender fluidity, because some days a boy might feel like a girl. I don't know any boys who do, but and I never did, but apparently some boys feel like girls some days. But they might feel like a boy again later on, and maybe like a girl later on. They, they're fluid. It's just how they feel. That's their reality. That's their truth. And <clears throat> when people go by their feelings instead of their rationality, they're making a big mistake. Now, the, the value of feelings, for example, fear is a very good feeling to have when there's danger. It's not a sin to feel that feeling. Animals have fear, and it keeps them alive many times. And that's what God built in. Animals are not, don't have, they don't sin. Being afraid of something that's dangerous is not a sin. And if somebody says, if you don't bow down to this image, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And you say, I'm afraid. You're about, you're about average. You're, you're probably very normal. And you're not sinning to be afraid of that. But you still have to make your decision based on something other than your fear. You have to ask yourself, but what does God require? What is the right thing to do? I have to base that on what I know of the truth, not what I feel about the situation. Uh, you know, I feel like it'd be safer to bow down to that idol and not be thrown into the fiery furnace or to the lion's den, let's say. That might be my feelings, but if I follow those feelings instead of what I know to be true, I'll do the wrong thing. Because morality is not determined by how I feel about doing something. It's, the, it's based on a more objective revelation of the truth that God has given us. And my feelings about things can often lead me astray. It's good to be afraid if, uh, you know, if, if there's, let's say, the building next door or the field next door caught on fire and the fire was moving quickly toward this building and they said, listen, this building is in the line of that fire. We're gonna, the building's probably going to go up in flames in the next 15 minutes. We would be fearful enough, and rightly so, to leave the building. It would involve no moral compromise. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Fear can motivate you to do a sensible thing. Likewise, um, anger. Jesus was angry. The Bible actually says in Mark that Jesus looked on the Pharisees with angry, with anger, being grieved at their hardness of heart. There's nothing wrong with anger. God is angry too. 
What's angry, what's, what, what we're not supposed to do is let anger determine our behavior toward people that we're supposed to love, including our enemies. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, they're trying to provoke you to anger. Well, you maybe would be angry. But you don't strike back because you're supposed to love instead of, of striking back. Uh, you're supposed to forgive. If you're angry at someone, you don't feel like forgiving. But you have to anyway. You can't let your anger stop you. If you are governed by your emotion of anger, you will not follow Christ faithfully. On the other hand, anger is, a, is an emotion that is appropriate in certain things. When I hear about child trafficking, I get angry. When you feel about, when you hear about a child that's, you know, kidnapped and, and badly treated, I don't want to speak, I don't want to give too many clear examples because there's children here, but when you hear about horrible injustices and horrible evil, if you don't get angry, you're not like God because he's angry. You're not like Jesus. He's angry too. He loves the sinner, but he is angry at injustice, of course. So should you be. But just because you're angry doesn't mean that you should follow your impulse and go out and, say, kill the person. You see, anger can motivate you to take a stand to confront injustice or whatever. But it can also lead you to do the wrong thing if you're not following your intelligence, which is based on your knowledge of the truth, and say, okay, yeah, I feel like doing this. It even feels like it would be very satisfying to do this thing. But... I, I, I know the truth is that I'm not supposed to do that. Jesus described how I'm supposed to react to things. But I maybe have to, maybe I should react in some way. I mean, punching the guy out or shooting him or killing him, that, that'd be a wrong response, but maybe uh, speaking up against him, you know, standing up to him, confronting it. That's, that's a very Jesus-like thing to do. Jesus stood up to the Pharisees. He was very hard in his speech toward them, but he didn't, only because he told the truth. But see, the truth is going to feel harsh. And in a society where kids have learned to trust their feelings and just go with their feelings, we have created a society, uh, you probably have heard the word snowflakes. This, is one, this word's been around for uh, a few years now. It's hard to keep up with all the language of the woke, but uh, because they changed the language so much, I think they're trying to leave us in confusion and we don't know what words or we're supposed to use anymore, what pronouns or whatever. They introduce new words all the time. It's really hard to keep up, but I'm sure most of you have heard the term snowflake. It's a fairly common in use now. A snowflake refers to a person who is so fragile that they melt if you simply disagree with them. Uh, there was a podcasting convention recently. I forget where it was, but all the podcasters in the United States... Uh, had booths there, or not, or not all of them, but hundreds of them did. And, and yet there was a, one podcaster named Ben Shapiro, who you might know, he's a Jewish conservative man who has a conservative podcast. He just showed up at his booth. A few pic, he had a few pictures taken with his fans, and they left. And the, the people around were infuriated that he had just shown up. They said they felt unsafe. They felt threatened by his very presence his very existence. You see, you might say, oh, come on, no one's that silly. There are people that silly. They're so given over to trusting their feelings instead of any objective reality that they actually feel that they're threatened by the, exist the mere existence of someone who doesn't agree with them. 
Now, when people are like that, you know that they have no grasp of truth and they don't even think they have grasp of truth because if they thought they had the truth, they would be unthreatened. When you have the truth, you're bold as a lion. I remember hearing Dr. Gish, uh, who was a, I, I suppose he's probably died by now. It's been many years ago. It's probably 40 years ago. He was one of the creation scientists from the Creation Institute in San Diego, and he was debating evolutionists around the country, university professors and so forth. He's debating for creationism. And I was at a talk where he was taking, uh, it was a Q&A, and, and someone said, Dr. Gish, do you ever feel even slightly intimidated when you have to get up against one of these major evolutionary authorities to debate them on stage? And he said, well, he said, actually, not really. He said, he said you know, when you have the truth, it's a very reassuring thing. You know, when you know that what you have is true. Now, here's the thing. Christians, individual Christians and, and corporate groups of Christians cannot battle for the truth if they are unsure about the truth or uninformed about the truth. And that's why Christians need to be biblically literate for the first, for one thing. We live in an age where biblical literacy is at a very low point. And like Jeremiah said, you know, they've rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom is in them? I didn't realize that there's no real wisdom outside of the Bible until our society rejected the Bible. You see, most of my growing up years, people weren't Christians. Lots of, I mean, there were Christians, but there were a lot of people who were not Christians. But they still thought in rational ways because they still kind of thought the biblical worldview was probably kind of correct and they believed the Bible was probably the word of God. Most people didn't want to obey it. They didn't want to want to you know, stand up for it or follow Jesus, but they, in their minds, they still strongly suspected the Bible is the word of God and that, you know, the golden rule is a good thing and, and all that. And that people shouldn't, uh, you know, swear around ministers and things like that, you know. They had this, this, this worldly, this worldly uh, kind of reverence for Christianity that they didn't really want to acknowledge it was true, but they were still influenced by it. But now even that is gone, except for in the churches. No one cares about the Bible anymore. Uh, now, I, for the sake of the young people here who are being raised in Christian homes uh, and who might say, well, you know, how do I know that, I, that this is true? I mean, my parents tell me it's true, but I've had people say, if you were raised in, in uh, Saudi Arabia, you'd think that Islam was true. If you're raised in India, you'd think Hinduism is true, but you're raised in America, so you think Christianity is true. Let me tell you something. Being raised in America doesn't predict for you thinking Christianity is true. Most people raised in America do not think Christianity is true, and it's not because they're smart. It's because they don't care about truth. It's they know what they want. They want a pleasing fantasy. They want to believe what they want to believe. That's why people, uh, some people, I've never quite understood the, the uh, attraction, but some people like to go out and drink alcohol a lot and get drunk. They like to lose touch with reality because reality isn't good to them or they don't welcome it. They don't want truth. They want to feel euphoric. They want to have feelings. This is something we need to stand against in society. And we do this, but first of all, by becoming literate ourselves, we need to really study to show ourselves approved. We need to be ready to give every man an answer for the hope that lies in us with meekness and reverence. Uh, we need to know not only what we believe, we need to know why we believe it. Many Christians, perhaps generations ago, were raised by parents who said, we believe the Bible because it's the word of God and just don't question it. Well, 
that's fine, since the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, I guess you can believe it without questioning it. But what if it weren't? That wouldn't be a very good approach. What if you were raised Mormon? And they said, oh, just believe the Book of Mormon. It's the Word of God. Just don't question it. Well, that's not a good policy. What if you, what, what if you're raised with the Quran and they said, oh, the Quran, that's the word of Allah. That's the word of God. Just believe it. Don't believe it. No, we should be critical thinkers. And we should not be afraid that we're offending God if we bring a critical approach to saying, let me see the evidence that the Bible is true. If you haven't done that, let me tell you what you find. You find the evidence is that the Bible is true. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence doesn't matter what kind of truth you find, it'll always agree with the truth, and it'll always agree with Scripture. Archaeology? Archaeology is how we know about what happened in the past. Most of the Bible is historical narrative about things that happened in the past. More than half of the Bible is historical narrative. Archaeology, 200 years ago, was founded basically to discover some of these biblical sites. Almost all archaeology, the whole field, is biblical archaeology. Although now they're secular, but it started out as a biblical quest. And they found... Everywhere they dug where the, where the Bible said there was a city at one time, but isn't now, they found there was a city under there. There were, there were people who were skeptical about whether Sargon II, who was mentioned in Isaiah chapter 20, had ever really existed as a king in Assyria. Uh, none of the other historians in the world had left a record of him. Only the Bible mentions him in one verse. And skeptics said, well, you know, if he really existed, the other historians would know, I don't think, we don't think he really existed. Then they found his palace. They excavated his palace and found his name all over it. Same thing with Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. The pagan historians had said the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, not Belshazzar. In fact, the pagan sources didn't even know the name Belshazzar. That name only existed in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Belshazzar, as far as anyone apart from Daniel knew, didn't ever exist. And for, for many years, skeptics said, well... We're going to go with what Herodotus said in Thucydides. The Greek historians, they said the last king in Babylon was Nabonidus. There was no Belshazzar that Daniel talks about. And they figured that was an evidence that Daniel was mistaken. Until 1853, when they excavated in Ur of the Chaldees and found a temple that Nabonidus had written an inscription to his false god, and in that inscription, he said, May reverence for you dwell in me forever and in my firstborn favorite son, Belshazzar. Now, the name Belshazzar had never been seen anywhere in the modern world ever. No one had seen it except in Daniel chapter 5. Suddenly there's a pillar that Nabonidus, the alleged last king of Babylon, had inscribed mentioning his best firstborn son, Belshazzar. And then they found Nabonidus tablets, they found other archaeological things, and they found out that Nabonidus, in fact, was the king, but so was Belshazzar. Nabonidus was in semi-retirement in Arabia when Babylon fell to the Greek, uh, to the Persians, and he'd left Belshazzar as the second-in-command king in Babylon. And Daniel tells us that when Babylon was taken by the Persians, Belshazzar was the king there which no one remembered that. The Greek historians didn't remember that, but Daniel pursued it. The Bible has always been proven right when it's been challenged. Again and again, archaeologists have proven the Bible right, and, and a famous non-Christian archaeologist, Nelson Gleck, a Jewish, one of the great Jewish archaeologists in Israel, he said there has never been any 
archaeological find that has contradicted any biblical statement. Now, that's a pretty important thing because lots of archaeological finds have it, and there's lots of biblical statements, and there's never been any point at which archaeologists have found anything in the past that they've dug up that wasn't agreeable with what the Bible already said, even when other ancient historians didn't agree with the Bible. Archaeology vindicates the Bible. It doesn't vindicate the others. That's what you'd expect if the Bible's true. The Bible can be checked out in all kinds of ways, and I won't go into them now because that's another study, but the Bible is true. And you never have to be afraid that somebody will prove it to be false if you open up to an argument with them. You know, you have to be a rational person, though. You have to recognize when an argument is a bad argument. I mean... If Richard Dawkins, the atheist, says, well, there's no God because the God of the Old Testament is an obnoxious, you know, uh, you know, proud, arrogant, uh, horrible, cruel tyrant. Uh, he says the God of the Old Testament is one of the most un, you know, unlikable characters in all literature. Okay, so did, was that supposed to be like an argument that there's no God? What you just told me is you don't like that God. Is that supposed to be an argument against his existence? I don't like Hitler, but that doesn't mean he didn't exist. There's lots of people alive today that exist that I don't care for very much. To say I don't like God is a very far cry from proving that there's no God. And yet that's what passes as an argument among the, one of the leading biologists in England and, and the chief spokesman for atheism in the modern world. These people don't know how to think because they don't know the truth. And we can know the truth. The truth can be known. If you trust what the scripture says, Jesus said, continue in my words, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And knowing it, we have to be unafraid to stand for it and live by it in a world that is going to more and more say that we're not only fools, but they're going to say we're evil. There were people when I was younger who thought believers in Christianity were fools. They thought we were deluded. But no one really said we were evil. Nowadays, it's more common for the anti-Christian people to say, Christianity, that's evil. That, that's just evil because society is progressing toward, you know, more modern, helpful ideas, and Christians are like dragging their feet and holding us back. I mean, uh, we might have to get rid of them in order for society to progress. It wouldn't be the first time some society did that to the Christians or, or to any other group that they, they saw as a hindrance to their progress. Christians in this society are increasingly unpopular and increasingly accused of being haters. You know, you think, wait a minute, Jesus said we should be known by our love, and most of the Christians I know are loving people. I don't know very many Christians that are less loving than any of the non-Christians around, and most of them are exceedingly more loving so why would anyone call us haters? Because we stand for unpopular truth. Don't worry, we're not the first. The very first centuries of Christians were accused of being atheists and haters of humanity. Well, why? Because we didn't believe in the gods of the Romans. The Christians believed in a God that couldn't be seen. The Romans only believed in gods that were, you could see. They're made of stone and wood. And Christians said, those aren't gods. There's no gods there. The real God is invisible. And so Romans thought, these people are atheists. They don't believe in our gods. Amazing that we would be called atheists when we're the people who were all about God. 
or that they be called, why were they called haters of humanity? Because they didn't like to go to the gladiatorial games and watch people get hacked up and fed to wild beasts for entertainment. They, they kind of opted out of a lot of the social things that the society was really into, and therefore they seemed a little separate, like they weren't really getting with the program that everyone else was with, because they stood for something that the society didn't. Yeah, Christians can be blamed falsely for being haters, but you're going to have to accept that label if that's what people are going to use. You cannot sell the truth because you don't want to be called a hater. You can say, okay, yeah, I, I wanted to have the truth, but I, I'm not going to pay that price. Uh, I'll go ahead and sell out on it and, and because I, want, I don't want to stand for the truth. No, we have to stand for the truth because we're the only people who have it. And the battle for the truth is going to have to be conducted with words primarily, words and deeds. It's not going to be won through politics, but that doesn't mean we don't have any involvement with politics at all. Obviously, uh, you know, if, I mean, some Christians choose to stay out of politics altogether, and maybe that's good, but I think we're supposed to be a light on a hill, a city on a hill, a light to the world. We're supposed to be leaven in the lump. We're supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, that which preserves salt of the earth. We're supposed to have an impact on our society, and the impact we're supposed to have is with the truth. Now, the, the fact is, we live in a society where we still have a say about whether the truth is allowed to be spoken or not. More and more, some of the political candidates are going to be, the choices that are going to be out there for the world to choose is somebody who's going to say, yeah, I think we have freedom of speech. I think, I think anyone should be able to say what they want, including Christians. Other people are going to say, well, no, everyone should say what they want if they agree with the woke side, but everyone else's should be silenced because they're dangerous. You know, we can say, well, I'm not going to vote. I'll let God handle it, and I'll just take the persecution if it comes. Okay, that might be the right answer, but it might not be the right answer because the, the, the main thing we're supposed to do is to what we would want people to do to us, we should do to them. I might say, well, I'm willing to suffer persecution for the truth, so I'm not going to get involved in this, in this controversy. Uh, let, let the wicked take over completely and let them persecute us and let them feed us lying. I'm, I'm a champion for God. I'll go down. Yeah, but if my vote has an impact on keeping freedom of truth to be heard in society as opposed to not voting, seeing that taken away, I'm not the only one who's going to be affected by that. The whole society is. The next generation is going to be. The next two generations. You see, I... I'm not, I've never been a political activist in any way, but I, I am thankful that previous generations, you know, preserved the truth. They kept the Bible in the open square. They, they, they allowed freedom of religion so that I could know the truth. And I'd like, I'm glad they did that. I want to do that if I can for my children too. If I can. Now I'm not going to get all wrapped up in a political party because that's, to my mind, that's becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers. But for me as an individual to vote for what's true, that is one way the battle is conducted. It's not the way that it'll be won, but it may be the way that the battle is not prematurely brought to a close in favor of the lies. You know, if we simply don't speak up and we just say, well, you know, we'll just trust God with the culture and if it goes bad, we'll just accept the consequences. Well, it's very heroic and it's very, uh, it's what we have to do if that's what we have to do. But do we have to?
Do we have opportunities to still insist that the truth can be heard? We can still speak in the public square. We write letters to editors. We can, whatever, if you've got the talent, write books, uh, be interviewed, uh, go to the school board, whatever, and stand up for what's true because the truth, we find, it does not defend itself. It is defended by those who are valiant for the truth. The truth can defend itself if it is presented, but only those who are valiant for the truth will keep presenting it in a world where it's dangerous to present it, where it's costly to present it. But we just have to say, listen, the, the great commodity I'm not going to part with ever, if I have any choice about it, is the truth. I'm going to always want the truth, even if it's an unflattering truth, even if it condemns something I've always wanted to do or I have been doing. I want the truth. Don't feed me sweet little lies. Give me the truth. I'm a, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. If it's not what I wanted to hear, I'm, I've got thick skin I can, I can endure. I'm not a snowflake. I'm not going to crumble as soon as I hear something I don't agree with. If it's true, I want to know it. I'd rather... Uh, A.W. Tozer said something I liked when I, I read this when I was like in my 20s, and I remember he said, if I can either have happiness or truth, give me truth, I'll have all eternity to be happy. You know, if, if I have to choose between, if, I, if, if holding the truth would make me unhappy, and I have to choose between truth and happiness, I'll go for the truth. Let me sacrifice the happiness for the time being. I've got all eternity to be happy. If I sacrifice the truth, I'll have all, all eternity to be unhappy. And, uh, you know, this is something we need to realize. This is a battlefield for the truth now. It didn't used to be quite to the same degree it is now. But every time you turn on the news, every time you hear anyone express an opinion in the ac academia, uh, it's always, you're thinking, What? I mean, don't you, don't you often find yourself saying, what? Are people really that stupid now? The answer is yes. They have forsaken the word of the Lord. What wisdom is in them? They're fools. There's not enough outside of the Bible to keep people on track with sanity. It's obvious the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you don't fear God, you don't have the beginning of wisdom or the middle part or the end either. You got no part of it. You're just a fool. And we are supposed to be servants of the Lord who help people see the truth, come to their senses and, and escape the snare of the devil who's taken them captive. And we may need to make sure we aren't taken captive by our firmness in standing with the truth too. I'm, I'm going to stop there only because I, of the clock. Uh, I have a lot, you know, I could go all night because I haven't even touched most of the things on my notes, but which is almost always the case. But we're going to have a Q&A, and that was something that was promised, and it's something I enjoy. So I'm going to have to stop back, you know, rambling on to give you a chance to have a Q&A. Um, and, and actually, Alan, I don't know what you had in mind when you said Q&A. About this or about anything or what, what were you thinking? Uh, say about anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm at your service. I, if you have questions about something I said tonight, I'd love to hear the question. I'd love to have a chance to answer it if I could. If you have other questions about the Bible, because I'm comfortable with any question or challenge, frankly, about anything I believe, um, I'd be glad to answer, if I can, any questions that, that someone wants to raise. Um, yes? How about we take a five-minute break? I was thinking a stretch.
would be good. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So you won't have to feel awkward getting up and leaving if this is the time you need to leave. Let's take a break for five minutes. You can go to the bathroom or something, come back here, and we'll take whatever is left of our time for the Q&A. All right. Now, when you say foundational issues, are you talking about issues like confidence that the Bible is reliable or confidence in some particular conviction as a Christian that you've supported and you're not sure if it needs adjustment? Or what kind of issues are you thinking of? Because there are resources and books on almost everything. But, but uh, like if you're saying, uh, you know, sometimes I read the Bible, I'm not 100% sure that I that I believe it's the Word of God. Is there something that can help me there? Is that your... Start there. Start there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say most of the resources that I have used, I used when I was much younger because I was entered the ministry 50 years ago and I acquainted myself with most of the apologetic issues back then. I, when new things come up, I become usually aware of them too. But frankly, the books that I've read um, that are on my shelf that, that establish the evidence that proves, you know, that the Bible is reliable and true uh, are mostly older books. But I'm sure there's a lot of newer ones because people keep putting them out. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the great books that came out 50 years ago was Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Now, it's not the most accessible book because it's written in kind of a strange outline form, but it's it's full of tremendous stuff. And he has put out later editions of similar books, like there's one called, uh, it has the word evidence, I, I forget what it is, or a ready defense. I think Josh McDowell, he's probably put out a hundred books now on apologetics, but I think he put out one called a ready defense that that has a lot of the same material in under questions that people might ask or you might have. But I, I would just say reading, uh, you know, solid, you know, pe- people who don't have doubts about the Bible themselves who write books, they usually have evidence that they present because they want you to hold it. I mean, obviously, people like uh, Lee Strobel, you know, the case for Christ, the case for truth, the case for, you know, he's got the case for everything out there, different books. Um, There's a great number of books like that, but those are older ones. I'll bet there's a whole bunch of newer ones because writers keep writing about this stuff. And I don't know what's out there now. There might be some that are more accessible, more easy to understand. But those, some of those older ones are just fine. Actually, if you look up on like either Amazon or ChristianBook.com or something. If you look up Josh McDowell's books, probably they'll say those who ordered this also were interested in these books. And that's where you get a, a line of similar books, including probably some more modern ones. Uh, it's, it's, it's so easy to find resources of, of a certain type these days because of that feature, you know. I think Amazon would do this maybe. I don't know if ChristianBook.com does it so much, but... Uh, like I say, if you if you look up a Lee Strobel book or a Josh McDowell book or something like that, there's going to say you know. And readers also were interested in these titles, and you'll look at it and you read about them. You see, almost anything that's up there, if it's recommended by evangelical guys, it's probably going to have some of the same evidence. But really, there's there's only so much evidence that from which all these books draw. The, the question is which which book is going to be the most easy for you to 
understand and read and things like that. Um, but there's, there's t- tons of, there's a book out called Why Should I Believe Christianity? And there's lots of books with those kinds of titles on them. Um, obviously, C.S. Lewis is a great author, though he doesn't write biblical apologetics. He, he's more of a Christian philosopher who defends Christian ideas and Christianity itself. Um, anyone who has never read Mere Christianity really is uh, you know, cheating themselves. I mean, everyone should read Mere Christianity. I've read it probably 20 or 30 times since I was a teenager. Uh, it's, it's very good. Although it doesn't, it argues for the truthfulness of Christianity. It doesn't, it doesn't argue about, you know, the inspiration of the Bible because it's a different, he's thinking, he's addressing another kind of issue more philosophically. But there's great authors out there. I can't tell you who the ones who are most popular are now. Um, there's one named Frank Turek, who's a, a good guy. Um, Craig Evans is another apologist who's out there who's writing good stuff about uh, the reliability of Scripture. Um, Craig Blomberg is another one. Uh, there's, you know, I, these names might not mean anything to you, but they, like I say, you're going to find these names you're going to find these books in a lineup of books that will come up probably on Amazon if you look for anything in that category. Um, if you want something you don't have to read, you're going to find it probably on YouTube a lot of stuff that's apologetics. I, I have my lectures are on there too. There's about 1,500 of my lectures online. Uh, whatever, there's a lot of them on YouTube, but whatever isn't there is on audio at my website, thenarrowpath.com. I've got lectures verse by verse through the whole Bible. Plus, I have another page of hundreds of lectures on topics, including some apologetics. A series of mine called The Authority of Scripture is uh, lots of people have found helpful. It basically talks about how do we know the Bible's true and, and how do we, you know, access that truth and apply that truth and so forth. It's called The Authority of Scripture. It's at thenarrowpath.com under the tab that says topical lectures. But... Um, I mean, it's funny, I, I, I'm really inclined to recommend my own materials first, but then I'm disinclined to do so, because I think, well, I'm not the greatest expert on everything, and I don't want to just, you know, promote my own materials. But, but honestly, I have read the best people that are out there that I know of, and I do, I do make it my effort to kind of digest the best arguments and so forth for a for, a, for an audience to easily grasp. So you might just go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. And uh, like I said, if you t- hit the tab that says topical lectures, there's a series called The Authority of Scripture, which might be a good place to start. Uh, there's a single lecture at my website called Why I'm Still a Christian, where I'm uh, responding, first of all, to some of the atheist objections, but also giving the positive reasons that I'm persuaded that Christianity is true and that the Bible's true. So those are some of the resources that I could recommend. Some are obviously my own resources, and some are those that I've used. Sure. Any commentaries that you lean on? Any commentaries, like uh, if you're studying through a book of the Bible or something, a commentary? I have quite a few commentaries on my shelf, but I have to say I disagree on many things with the people who write them. Uh, For example, I've got John MacArthur's commentaries. Someone gave them to me. They, he covers at least the whole New Testament, but he's a Calvinist and he's a dispensationalist and several things that I'm not, you know. 
But I, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have some good things to say. I mean, even people who I disagree with have, in a commentary, they're going to have some insightful things and historical backgrounds that are helpful and, and many times apologetic arguments for a passage. So, I mean, I, you don't have to have a commentary that, that, that I would necessarily agree with or that you even agree with, but uh, I have found that the set of commentaries, they're paperbacks, they're called Tyndale commentaries. There's the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, it's a set of them, and Tyndale Old Testament commentaries, a set of them, they're paperbacks, so they're a little less expensive than some. Most commentaries, you know, come in hardbound sets and they're spendy. But, and these are not as cheap as they used to be. The nice thing about them is they're very evangelical, that is to say they're believers who wrote them, not liberals. Lots of commentators are liberals, and, and they're going to try to undermine your faith in the Bible more than support it. But these, these Tyndale commentaries, is, uh, they do have several evangelical authors, uh, some of whom I really like. I like Derek Kidner in the Old Testament. He writes good ones on, on uh, Genesis and, uh, I believe, Psalms and Proverbs and so forth. But they have different authors for different books. F.F. F. Bruce is a, one of my favorite commentators. He was a brethren uh, guy, so he was dis... No, he was not dispensational. He, he disagreed with his own tradition on that. He was not dispensational. But, um, but he was considered one of the best evangelical scholars in his lifetime. He died a couple decades ago, but F.F. Bruce. But he, he wrote the Romans commentary in the Tyndale set. Uh, any, you know, I, I can't really recommend with, uh, without reservation any commentaries without giving the impression that if you read it, you'll find things I agree with and endorse in it, you know. All I can say is most commentaries that are not written by liberal scholars are useful, you know. I don't use them very much, but there are times when a verse is giving me some trouble or I'd like to know what the nuances are in the Greek or the Hebrew, and I don't know that myself, so I'll, and I'll look it up. And Most of them have helpful things like that. But I've never really recommended any set of commentaries just... Uh, you know, without reservation. Okay, yeah, there's some question as to who the pharaohs were in the time of Moses, and he asked if I know any good material. There is actually a very good documentary on that. Many of you may have seen. It's called Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. I thought that that was quite good. Uh, there are two basic theories about the time of the Exodus. Some scholars place it in the 13th century BC and some place it in the 15th century BC, 200 years earlier. And um, I take the earlier view myself. But obviously, the Bible doesn't name the Pharaoh, you know, in Exodus, so we don't know for sure which one it was. But obviously, if it happened in the 13th century, it's going to be a different guy than in the 15th century. Um, and so there's some dispute. One of the views that's kind of interesting is that there was a period of time where a group of pharaohs called the Hyksos pharaohs conquered Egypt and ruled Egypt for a few generations. And then they were themselves conquered by native Egyptian pharaohs after that. So there's a brief period in Egypt's history where the Hyksos pharaohs were actually ruling. And they were Semitic people. They weren't Jews, but they were Semites. They were not native Egyptians. And some have thought, well, the pharaoh that elevated Joseph and favored Joseph so much might have been one of the Hyksos pharaohs who was, might have been favorable toward Joseph because they're both Semitic people, uh, whereas the, you know, the pharaoh that then put them under bondage and didn't remember Joseph and so forth could have been one of the first pharaohs after 
the Hyksos were overthrown. I, I don't remember the names of all the, the pharaohs involved. Um, they have long names with lots of syllables and things like that. But, but I, I, you know, a good, you know, any good conservative commentator will probably wrestle with that matter and will have something reasonable to say. But I think that, that documentary called uh, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, I thought that was very helpful. Uh, it takes a conservative view. It takes the Exodus as a historical fact, and it wrestles with the time and, the, and who the pharaohs were and so forth. Um, so that, I'd recommend that resource. Yeah. You can probably see it on YouTube or buy it on DVD. How would a rational person look at somebody who gave up on God because they got angry at God? I mean, I think a lot of people who get angry at God profess to be atheists, but then they don't have anyone to be angry about, you know? So it doesn't make sense to become an atheist if you're angry at God, but that's really what drives people to call themselves atheists. They think God made me mad, so I'm going to punish him by not believing in him, you know? I'm going to punish God by not believing he's real. But I think, I believe that in many cases these people protest too much. I think they are revealing that they really do suspect that God is real and they don't like the decisions he makes with reference to them or other people that they are sympathetic toward. <clears throat> but if somebody's rational and says, okay, there is a God and I'm not pleased at all, with his activities. I don't like the way he treats me. I don't like the way he treated the Canaanites. I don't like what he does to people who don't believe in Jesus. I don't like that. Well, but all the while I'm saying, but there is a God. And how irrational is it to say, even though there's a God, I know better than he does about what he should do. I know better than he does about what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. And we're not even get the idea that some things are bad. If it wasn't for him. On what basis are they bad? Just because I don't like them? Well, what if I don't like it to rain and some farmer really likes it to rain and it rains? Is God a bad God or a good God? Well, to me, he's a bad God. I don't like rain. To the farmer, he's a good God. So, I'm, you know, does God's goodness or badness depend on people's opinion of him or their preferences? Obviously, a person who's rational is going to say, okay, either there's a God or they're not. I suspect there is. I think all the evidence favors it. There's no evidence against it. So I'm going to go with the proposition that there's a God. Now, uh, how do I explain the fact that God has let my marriage break up? How do I go and deal with the fact that he let me have cancer or that he, my child died or something happened like that? Um, well, you, I think you need to seek God, you know. He's not going to go away because you get angry at him. You're still going to have to deal with him. You're just, you know, cutting your own nose off to spite your face if you're saying, okay, I'm going to punish God. No, you're not going to punish God. He'll get along real well without you. You won't. You know, it's just an irrational tantrum that somebody who isn't, who's gotten more invested in his emotions than in truth is allowing himself to be deceived by, you know. Um, it's like when, when a, a teenage kid or a, a young adult very angry at their parents, and, and they're so angry they, they denounce their parents, and they say, I don't have a parents. Well, they really do. And, there's, and, and the relationship with their parents is really something that's worth repairing, you know. 
Uh, and being angry at them is not a good solution. That's not a resolution of anything. Being angry at God doesn't resolve anything. Because the world's not going to be more pleasing to you. God's not going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, Nathan. You know, you, you weren't pleased with what I did. Tell me how I can change things. You know, I'll do anything to make you happy with me. No, that's not the position God's in, and it's not the position we're in. It's like God is the one that all the universe is obliged to be in sync with. Now, if somebody says, but I don't think he's a very nice God if he wanted all those Canaanites killed. Well, where'd you get the idea of what's right and wrong? How much do you know about those Canaanites? What would you have suggested that he do with them instead of what he did? You know, where'd you get so smart? You know, maybe it's better to think, okay, if there's a God, he's, he knows a lot more than all of us put together. I could not create an atom. I could not create a quark. I could not, <clears throat> I don't even understand quantum physics. I can't even see the edge of the universe he created. You know, there's billions of stars there. I'm a speck of dust living on a speck of, on a grain of sand, you know, in the universe. And I put myself in the position to assess whether God is doing the right thing or not. What arrogance is this? I mean, honestly, it's sheer arrogance. But what what motivates a person to do it? It's that, again, in most cases, and people do this toward other people too. <clears throat> someone displeased me. Someone really got me angry at them. So I'm just going to be mad at them. And that'll punish them. You know, and, and obviously, if you're holding a grudge against someone, whether it's God or whether it's another person, you're not really hurting them. You're just letting, you're just letting your own life be ruined by your attitude toward them. It obviously, it, it makes more sense, and this is what smart people have done for centuries, is that when God did something that was very painful in their life, they try to figure out why. What, what is God trying to teach me? What is God trying to accomplish for this? God is smart. And I have every reason to believe God is good because if he's not, I have no basis for deciding what's good and what's not good. If there isn't a good God, then how can I say anything is good or bad? How can I even judge that God isn't doing what's good because I have no basis for deciding what good is? It's irrational to criticize God. I understand people being disappointed with God. But even being disappointed with God, the rational response is not say, Therefore, I'm going to denounce him. No, it's much smarter to think, you know, there's a very good possibility that God's smarter than me. There's even a very excellent possibility he's better than me. And if, if he's smarter and better than me, then he, he knows more about why he did this than I do. And it might turn out that it's for a very good reason. I had an atheist say, you know, I don't believe in God because he let my mother die of cancer. I said, well, how did you want her to die? What day did you want her to die? You didn't want her to die that day. What day did you want her to die? Could you, what day would you have named as the best day for her to die? And what way, the best way for her to die? Well, maybe we'd say die in her sleep, you know, so forth. But we don't get to choose those things. But what day would you like your loved one to die? No day. But they're going to die someday. So just deal with reality that this was her day. 
and that God knows they. You know, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground and die without the Father's will, so your mother didn't either. If God said, this is the day, then maybe I should say, this is probably the very best day that it could have happened. I'm glad it didn't happen any earlier, and who knows what mischief might have followed if she'd lived longer. We don't know the future. God does. I have to assume God is smart and good. If God's not smart and good, then we're all in trouble. The universe is in trouble. But if he is smart and good, he's probably a lot more of both those things than I am. And the smartest thing I can do is humble myself and say, God, I don't understand why you did this, but I know you're good. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Shall we receive the good things from the Lord, not the evil also? He told his wife when he said, you're speaking like a foolish woman. It's foolish to think you should receive good things from God and never receive bad things from God. What, what kind of sense is that? Why do you deserve good things at all? What did you ever do to deserve any good things from God? You know, I mean, really, rational people can work through this. Now, I, I will say this. Someone thinks I'm a little too rational about these things. My father died about a year or so ago, and and someone on the on the radio called me up and said, oh, I'm sorry to hear your father died. And I said, well, he was 95 years old. They said, didn't expect that. You know, it's like, well, what would you expect? You know, if he didn't die at 95, what, maybe 96, 97, how long do you think he's going to go? 150? No. 95 is a good long life. He went to heaven. There's no question about that. My dad was a wonderful Christian. He was ready. So, I mean, why should I be angry that he died or even even upset that he died. Now, of course, I'll miss him, but but miss, but feeling emotional about it isn't going to change anything. I believe God did the right thing at the right time. I believe he does that. I also had a wife who was killed in an accident when I was young. We'd been married six months. She was 25 years old. I didn't expect that. People have said many times when people heard, they said, were you angry at God when he let your wife die in an accident? I thought, angry at God? a concept I don't even, that does not compute. What is to be angry about? about? I knew when I married her, she's going to die. I didn't know what day she would die. I didn't know she'd die six months after we got married. But if it was, if it was 60 years after we got married, I still wouldn't enjoy her dying. I I have to just assume God's smart. Why, why get mad at God for doing what is the smartest thing a a good, uh, omniscient being? And a loving being can, can concoct for each person's life. I, I couldn't even conceive of being mad at God. I've been hurt by God, but getting hurt doesn't have to mean you get mad. You know? So, I'm sorry to say it, but your brother acted irrationally and to his own hurt. And I hope that he thinks that through a little better at some point and realizes that he's the one doing the wrong thing, not God. You know, yeah, we all suffer. Yes, ma'am. Oh, we've got a mic here. How do you get somebody out of this poor pity me kind of thing? How do you get someone out of this idea that there's, I deserve better than what I'm experiencing because I've lived a, a good life? First of all, I've lived a pretty good life, but I have some notable failures that are very shocking and embarrassing to me. I never thought would I could possibly do. I would never be able to say if something bad happened to me, I don't deserve this. Because every sinner deserves something called judgment. 
God doesn't give us all the judgment that we deserve. We have it better than we deserve. In fact, we have it so well that we have the luxury of feeling entitled to it. This is actually, entitlement is the attitude of a spoiled person. Now, she might say, I'm not spoiled. I've labored hard. I'm, you know, I've suffered much. Yeah, but it's, it's the attitude of entitlement is spoiled. A child who is always given what they want, always given everything they want, begins to feel like they deserve everything they want, and then they throw a fit when you don't give them what they want because they're spoiled. They're spoiled by too many blessings, too many indulgences, too many times that no one said no to them when, the, when maybe sometimes they should have. And they, they have simply not developed a character that responds okay to the word no. I'm talking about children now. Spoiled children. That's what makes them spoiled. Well, there's a whole society, Christian and non-Christian, in this part of the world at this particular time, which is spoiled. Do you know that after World War II, till time, until recently, has been the very most charmed season of human existence in history? I mean, even just in terms of convenience. We have electric lights, we have vehicles that are climate controlled, we can drive in the snow and not be cold instead of being in a buggy with a horse. Now, I don't know, maybe some of the nights you're talking about have buggies and horses, I'm not sure, but the point is we live in a time where convenience is just at our fingertips. We live in a, a, a land where there's been no invasion from barbarians in our lifetime. Uh, we've had 9-11, but unless you were in New York City, you know, or had relatives that were there, you probably didn't lose anything by it. But the, the thing is, the freedom we've had in this country, the freedom from persecution, I mean, Mennonites should appreciate that. They came to this country because of the persecution in Europe, and, uh, and they came here because so, they didn't have persecution here, and, and we take that for granted. We somehow think we're not supposed to be persecuted. Why? Well, just because I'm used to not being persecuted. I'm not supposed to have heartbreak. Why? Because I'm used to having a pretty good life. You know, everything's been pretty good. Better for Westerners in post-World War II America than for any people in any generation in the whole world history. I mean, there's... Other places in the world right now where children watch their parents being hacked up by Muslim, you know, invaders into their villages in, in Nigeria or somewhere, you know, or Sudan. I mean, there's, there's people starving to death, watching their children starve to death, or with horrible diseases that they have no medical attention to. We've got all the medical attention we need here. We don't have cures for everything, but if there's a cure for anything, it's here, you know. You don't have to go to another continent to find it. Soon, probably, but not now. And, uh, you know, we have everything handed to us on a silver platter. And yes, some people have worked harder. And obviously, some people have had greater trials than others. There are, no one lives a, a time without trials, but that was never true. There, there never were people who lived without trials. It's just that we have lived with fewer than anyone else, generally speaking, in history. And that means we're spoiled. You become accustomed to a certain amount of comfort, a certain amount of luxury, a certain amount of prosperity, a certain amount of hygiene, a certain amount of freedom, 
you know, a certain amount of decency in your neighbors. And when these things are interrupted by some unusual trial, we think, how could God do this to me? I can't believe God would let me suffer like this. Well, did you ever read uh, this, this book called The Bible? Did you find anywhere there the promise that the Christian life is supposed to be a life that brings you fewer trials than if you weren't a Christian? Did you ever find in the Bible anything that suggests a normal Christian life is a life of freedom, that is political freedom, prosperity, good health? I mean, that's what the prosperity gospel teaches, but it's a false gospel. You can't find it in the Bible. You only find it by finding verses that are taken entirely out of context and, and made to mean something that they never were intended to mean. It's obvious that Paul said, our light affliction. Now think about that. He was beaten with rods. He was, he was a cat of nine tails, 39 stripes multiple times. He was in prisons off. He was shipwrecked, floating on flotsam in the dead of night in the open sea several times. I mean, this is the guy who talks about his afflictions are light. What an optimist. He says, our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen because the things that are seen are temporal and the things that are not seen are eternal, Paul said. Now, he said, our afflictions, and he assumes that we have them, and even speaks of his as light comparatively, our light afflictions are only for a moment. Now, his lasted a whole, his whole adult lifetime and he ended up being beheaded. But he would have said the same thing if he could have written the letter after he was beheaded. He wouldn't have changed his mind about it. He expected it. But the, the truth is that Paul says, let's think like Christians here, if we could. Our afflictions are expected. They were predicted. They were promised to us. But they are light compared to what many other people have or what we could be experiencing. And they're only for a moment. He means for our lifetime, but that's only a moment. Eternity is long. Time is, life is short. And so even if you suffered every day of your life for, and lived to be a hundred years old, then you go to eternity and there's reward and there's no crying, no sickness, no death, no sorrow forever and ever for millions and millions of years. You're complaining that you had to go through a century, which like a thousand years from now, you'll hardly remember that. You, it's like you'll remember this. In eternity, you'll remember this lifetime, if at all, like you now remember the time you were in diapers. Really? Can you kind of relate with that time when you are in diapers? No, you could at the time. It was your whole world at the time. That was your reality. But it hasn't been for a long time now. And you can hardly even think, you can hardly believe that there was a time like that. You know there was, but it's far from your consciousness. It's far from your experience. So that's how eternity is. So Paul says, our afflictions are only a moment, but they work for us a far more exceeding and uh, weight of glory, exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And he says, this happens while we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. He's, now, your friend or relative is looking at what is seen, her circumstances. Anyone can see them. She can see them better than most. And she's looking at them. And she's evaluating, you know, whether this is a normal situation by what she sees. But what she doesn't see is the same thing Job didn't see. 
We see it because we have the first two chapters of Job that he didn't have. All he could see is everything was going wrong. Ten kids killed in one day. All his livestock, which was his wealth, was taken by marauders. He loses his health. He's covered with horrible sores. Everyone thinks he's a bad man because they have the same opinion your friend had, that if something bad happens to you, it must be because something's bad. If you're doing good, that shouldn't happen to you. So here, he loses his reputation. He was a very respected man. He loses his health. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses everything. He doesn't know why. Yeah, he's struggling with it. He's saying, I thought I was a good person. Why is God doing this to me? And his friends say, well, you're not as good as you thought, apparently, because God wouldn't do this to you if you were a good person. So you really, you're not a good person. Now, that's bad theology. We know what was going on behind things that Job couldn't see because we read about this contest between God and Satan over the soul of this man. Satan said, if you let me afflict him, he'll curse you. He'll come over to the dark side. And God said, no, I, don't, I trust him more than that. Go ahead and do it and see. We'll see what he's made of, you know. Now, that story is the story of everybody except we don't suffer quite as much as Job, most of us, but we all suffer when we didn't deserve it particularly. Now, frankly, we all deserve it. We're all sick and we all need surgery on our souls and, and the knife, when we're under the knife, that's the trials we're going through. That's, that's to cut away our self-centeredness, our pride, our, you know, prayerlessness. You know, when you come under trials, that drives you to God. That makes you feel helpless and, and humble. At least it should. And I mean, this is what surgery is. Our condition that we need to have changed is our sinful, self-centered, arrogant, entitled attitude. And these trials are the surgery for removing those cancers from us. But we can they only get removed if we cooperate. That's why Paul says these trials work for us, this glory, while we are looking at the right things. If we're not looking at the right things, well, all bets are off, whether this will do you any good or not. Not everyone benefits from their sufferings, but everyone could. And I'm afraid, I, I mean, this is a relative of yours, right? I, what she needs is to look at, first of all, she needs to read the Bible. Reading Job would probably help a great deal. Reading Jesus' words would help a great deal. Reading Second Corinthians or First Peter would help a great deal. These are books that make it very clear that suffering is normal. Because the normal thing, the normal condition of people is they are sick with sinfulness. This is a cancer, and God has to do surgery. If we hadn't fallen, become sinful, we wouldn't need to suffer. That's the surgery. I don't like getting a tooth extracted, but if I didn't have a rotten tooth, I wouldn't have to. I have to admit that I've got rottenness in me that has to be extracted, it has to be cleansed, it has to be. I need to be made to be more God-focused. I need to realize my helplessness and cry out to God more desperately. That's a good, healthy thing that I need to be, but I don't when everything's going my way. And, and when things are going my way too much, then I think they're always supposed to go my way. That is normal. And so I'm, I feel entitled. This is a very unhealthy deception that the devil has got her under. She needs to understand this life is short. It doesn't feel short when you get as old as us. It feels like we've been here a long time. But actually, when you're our age, it's shorter than we think, you know? It's when you're 15 or 25 years old, you don't feel like life is short. 
when you get older, you realize, well, life really is pretty short. Where did it all go? I've just got this ragged end to live out at the end, and then it's over. Well, that's a good thing to be aware of, frankly. It's a good thing to be mindful of. Yeah, life is short. So the sufferings of this person, they're, they're only for a moment. God's looking, the devil and God are looking over the clouds, saying, what is she going to do if this happens to her? And the devil says, I'll tell you, God, she's going to curse you. She's going to be angry at you. She's going to not love you for this. And God's saying, I, I'm hoping for better things from her about this. Let's just watch, you know. And that's, when my wife was killed, I actually had that mental picture. <coughs> when I, my wife was hit by, in a roadside accident by a truck and uh, was killed instantly. But neighbors called me and said she was in an accident. They didn't say she was dead. But uh, I ran up there and it was only a block or so away from where we lived. And the, the uh, paramedics were there. They'd covered her up and put, they were putting her in the ambulance to take her body away. I didn't know she was dead yet. I said, well, what's her condition? And they looked at each other and said, well, she's dead. And I've been married six months to this 25-year-old lady. And uh, I was, I think, 27. And, uh, you know, when they said she's dead, I thought, well, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) You know, I didn't say it quite like that. What I did say is, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, I literally uttered those words at that time because... What else are you going to do? I, I actually pictured that God and Satan had a bet on me. How, how, will I, how do you think he'll react if this happens to him? Uh, not too worried about what happened to her. She's in heaven. She was actually very eager to go to heaven, as I was, and it still am. To me, don't feel sorry for me if I get hit by a truck today. I'm looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it since I've been 16 years old, frankly. I want to see Jesus. and I, you know, Get me out of this crazy world anytime God thinks it's a good time. Because I've been thinking it's a good time for a long time. But <clears throat> honestly, that's where I'm at. I don't ever feel sorry for me if I die. I don't feel sorry for her. I was jealous of her. But she got out of here before I did. That's not fair. God, that's not fair. You should have taken me too. <laughs> but, but I really believe... When I go through a trial, and it doesn't have to be a big one. It can be a small one, just a small aggravation, a small loss, something unexpected that's a disappointment. That, I see, everything is the testing that we're going through. Why are we being tested? Because we're being qualified to reign with Christ. What does it take to qualify? Loyalty, faith, unwavering trust. That's why... God made Adam and Eve to reign with him. He says, let's make man and give him dominion over all this stuff. And let's test him here. Put him in the garden. Let the serpent come and try to deceive him. I, I, they don't have to fall because I told them the truth. So they know the truth, what I've told them. Now they're going to hear the devil's lie. They're going to have to choose. They're going to be loyal to me or, or not. They're going to trust me or not. Oh, they didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't pass. Job did. Adam and Eve didn't. Will I? Well, that's pretty much up to me. And fortunately, I have, an, I have their examples and I have the truth of the Bible to tell me how to succeed. If something goes what I say wrong in my life, I say, well, it, could this really be wrong for me? See, I believe that nothing can happen to me without God's permission, just like Satan couldn't touch Job because God had put a hedge around him. 
the devil complained, I can't touch this guy. You put a hedge around him and all this stuff. I can't do anything to him. That's true. The Bible says in Psalm uh, 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around about those who fear him and delivers them. There are angels surrounding us to deliver us from harm. Well, then why do we still experience harm? Same reason Job put a hedge around him suffered harm. God let it. God said, okay, I'll allow this test. I'll allow him to be tested. We've got to be tested. If we're not tested, how can we qualify? How can we show that we're loyal? How can we show God that we'll trust him when all the props to our faith are knocked out from under us? By saying, I will trust God. Though he slay me, I'll trust him. That's how we do it. And that's what your, your relative needs to learn. This life is not the time for us to be rewarded. Many Christians died as martyrs and they didn't receive any reward in this life. But they got a reward. And they're not unhappy about that reward. Uh, and, you know, we remember we are God's kids and the prosperity teacher says, well, God takes good care of his kids so we should be living as king's kids. Well, but the king is at war and his kids are in the trenches. His kids are in the field. We'll go to the palace when the war is over, but right now we're supposed to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, like Paul said. So we don't expect to party. We don't even expect to relax. We expect to do our duty in this short period of time we have to make our mark on God's world for his kingdom and to do all we can. And if we suffer for it, that's about average. That's about normal. No mysteries here. God doesn't owe us any explanations. He's already explained as much as he needs to explain. So I think, I know you can't just go turn and repeat all these things I'm saying. It's just, I hear questions like this a lot, and it sets me off. Why don't these people think the way I'm thinking, you know? Uh, don't they read their Bibles? But I will say this. There's a, uh, a brief, a short series at my website called Making Sense of Suffering. She might benefit from that. Uh, making sense out of suffering. It's at the website, thenarrowpath.com, under topical lectures. And there's only four lectures in that set. That's a short set. So she might uh, find it helpful. Yeah. I'm sorry for her. I really am sorry. I don't like to hear of anyone suffering. I just don't want to see somebody turn away. I know. Yeah, I, I hate to hear about people suffering because I feel it myself. I've suffered too. I'm empathetic. But... but uh, it makes me think something's not right if they're getting mad about God, mad at God. You know, what do they think he owes them, by the way? You know, what does God owe anyone? Anything that isn't hell is a mercy that's almost so great as to be inexplicable. And I'm not going to hell, so I got nothing to complain about. Nothing can happen to me that's worth complaining to God about or about God. Were you going to wind it up here, Alan, or would you? I think it's time for okay. us to call it quits for tonight. All right. Well, God bless you guys. I'll be here in the morning to talk. Uh, Alan has assigned me a topic, uh, which is how to talk to people we disagree with. Okay. Well, I've got a lot of experience talking to people I disagree with, so I'll, 
I'll, I'll be teaching about how to do that. All right. God bless you guys. Uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word because that is the anchor. That is the foundation. That's really the only thing that really makes sense out of everything. Even the parts we don't know why they make sense. Your word itself, the basis it provides for us to trust you and to know that you're working all things for good to those who love you and who trust you and who are called according to your purpose. And just the promises you've made give us every reason to be at peace in our souls. Even when there's turmoil and tribulation outward. As Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Yeah, that's normal. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, he said. And Father, help us to be of good cheer in a world that has more trouble and tribulation than it did when we were younger. And uh, help us to have an impact to help generations to come not to have more trials than we have to leave behind for them. Uh, in the impact we have in the world that they're inheriting from us. Help us, Father, to be wise, faithful, and strong under testing. And uh, just draw us near to you, because that's where the joy and the victory are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.